all do their best with the in, uh, intric with the intric god damn it with the intric I know this goddamn word I can't believe I can't say it intricacies all do their best with the in fucking shit <laughs> all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 224 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be the sum of two positive cubes episode of the sls cast because it turns out that uh the sum of two positive cubes that would be two cubed and six cubed is exactly 200 24. And with that little bit of mathematical knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And happy belated St. Patty's Day to you, Matthew. Oh, yes, my drunken shillelagh, as it were, enjoying my alter ego, Patty. Patio table. Yes, that's what I did on Friday. How, how did you enjoy your lucky leprechaun day? I went out. The significant other had a work event that she had to put together elsewhere in Californiaville. And so I went with a couple co-workers after eating fine, fine Texas barbecue. Yes, there is indeed a place that makes fine, fine, fine Texas barbecue. I know, very Irish. We did not eat potatoes. We didn't have any potatoes on St. Patty's Day. No potatoes. But we had plenty of meat, and it was good. But we went over to this place called O'Brien's in a part of L.A. town. This place, if I could describe to you what O'Brien's is actually, I'm calling it O'Brien's. That's how much wine and Glenfiddich I've been drinking within the past 10 minutes. It is called Brennan's, and this particular bar is known for its turtle racing. Uh, but they did not do turtle racing on St. Patty's Day, no. It was outfitted with their equivalent of Magnolia trailer trash and Texas A&M douchebags, conjoined together in drunken stupor in this harmonious mosh pit of head injuries, blood, and a lot of drinks. It was very entertaining. Let me know if you can top this or equal this in any way, because there is a feeling deep inside of me where I think you actually can. But I saw this guy right when we got in who was already drunk and kind of walking around, and it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We got off work early to go here. So he's kind of walking around. There's like an inside bar and the outside patio bar area where everybody's smoking cigarettes and a band was playing. And this guy was just trying to hit on chicks. And it's already 5 o'clock and this dude is already going there. And he was not having any success. So I go in to take a leak eventually. And this guy comes in and he passes out in the stall. This is a god-awful stall. It is disgusting. If you dropped your cell phone on the floor in this bathroom, you would immediately either burn it or find the nearest tank of acid, because that is how disgusting it is. 
But I thought that was going to be the highlight of the evening. Oh, no, no, no. While we were near the dance floor, in the inside area, where the more bluesy, jazzy, fun, my kind of music-y type of bandy was playing, there was this other guy, this college dipshit, who was wearing lime green puffy socks that were pulled up to his knees. <laughs> Funky-ass shoes. I don't know what they were. They might have been made out of felt, for all I care. He was wearing really short shorts, a lime green wig. He was wearing green suspenders. He was wearing the green overly tight shirt where his nipples were poking out like frickin' Vienna sausages. And he kind of stumbled his way to a chair, sat down, and I thought, okay, that guy had a lot to drink. And then he tried standing up, and he starts slipping and grabbing onto this chair, and the chair's slipping, and then he makes his, you know, he stands up all the way. And it's like, shit, it's only 5.01, I think this guy's fucked up, and he starts walking towards me. And he just falls over, and he goes face first into the floor, and his head just slams right into the corner of the bar table. And just blood is gushing everywhere. And it was just insane. Now, have have you, Matthew, have you ever seen such a overly drunken sight during your travels? I, I can I can truly say that I have never seen such an overly drunken sight because I was the overly drunken sight. That is even better. That's that's. I could not imagine anything better that you could have said than that you were that person. Do tell. We we must hear about this story. October twentieth, nineteen ninety seven. I I remember the day. Um, it's the only thing I can remember. All right. So it was about seven forty-five at night. I was at a friend of mine. His name is Mike. Um, it, it was his birthday party, and so I arrived very early to the birthday party, and my buddy Polly was also there, and we're in the kitchen at their place, and now. I'm a big guy, but you have to remember that I wasn't always a big guy. There was a time when I was young and thin and good looking. And I was, this was during that time. And so I was six foot four, about 210 pounds. And so I'm, you know, long, tall Texan guy, right? And my buddy Polly was about five, five and maybe, I don't know, buck 30 soaking wet. And um, we decided that it's a birthday party. We should start drinking. And we bust open a bottle of tequila. Tequila. Yes, this tequila was called Aztec Gold. Because clearly such a fine quality to be called Aztec Gold. And so we began with shots, easy enough. But then because we were young and stupid, we decided, hey, you know, I could drink more of this than you can. And so we got a 24 ounce iced tea glass and we were, we, we, it was swirled. So we could count the swirls as like lines in the glass. 
And so we're filling it up probably anywhere between half and two-thirds of the way full and just drinking it down straight as fast as we can because we're clearly trying to outdo the other. And so we ran out. Naturally, it doesn't take too long to go through a fifth of tequila this way. And so we drained that and then commenced to starting on a bottle of Jack Daniels. And so we're still competing. We're still competing. And we managed to go through the bottle of Jack Daniels about the, about that time that we finish off the bottle of Jack Daniels. Our buddy Sam shows up and Sam had just learned. Now remember, this is 1997. So we had just learned about this wonderful thing called a lemon drop. And so what he did was he he took some uh, just regular plain white granulated sugar and poured it onto a plate and then took lemons, right, cut in half and rubbed the lemon onto the sugar and then squeezed the sugar in uh, this lemon sugar thing into a glass that already had absolute vodka in it. Now, we we were, you know, thinking we're all high class. This is just basic blue label absolute, nothing special. And so then we polished off that fifth of absolute vodka. Now, I remember looking, and remember, now we had started, it was about 7.45 at night, we're still early and everything, and I remember in the kitchen, we was where we were drinking, and I told Sam, I was like, oh my god, Sam, this is like the fucking most amazing drink you have ever made, and I looked over his shoulder, and the clock on the microwave, because this is the last thing I remember, the clock on the microwave said 8.15, now, I don't know how good you are at doing math, but essentially we drank three-fifths of different kinds of alcohol in 30 minutes. I was a goddamn wreck for the next 15 fucking hours. I, <laughs> I got in nearly two different fights, none of which I can remember. Um, I apparently accosted a girl that I had only ever just met. Again, don't remember. And that, thankfully, came back later on to be just construed as a mistake. Thank God. Um, I was left outside on the porch um, where I was made fun of brutally, apparently. Uh, Polly was left in the tub in the bathroom because he was just puking all over the place. And then I was eventually had to be picked up by my father-in-law at the time, at which point I was driven 45 minutes home, hanging out the side of a van, puking everywhere, all up the side of the van, everything. Apparently, I freaked out three, three different bums by my antics hanging out of the van combined with just puking. Um, and then I puked so much that my ex-wife, God bless her for this one thing. I, you know what? I don't like her, but this, for this one night, she gets a pass. Uh, she literally, she nursed me, she took care of me, uh, though I didn't deserve it, and she left me with a bowl next to the bed because I, quote, did not want to be in a pukeaholic shirt, um, and then continued to puke in a bowl, at which point I woke up probably about 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, staring at a bowl half filled with vomit next to a trash can filled with vomit, 
half naked, wondering what happened. And folks, let me tell you, if you ever really want to never drink like that again, just ask the magic fucking question of what happened? Because everybody's going to be more than fucking happy to tell you. Um, <laughs> and that was October 20th, 1997. So did you ever have like a wild St. Patty's Day night? Because you, no. you really don't hear about wild St. Patty's Days, you know? <laughs> no, because of that. I have not ever done anything that fucking stupid ever again. The closest thing that I can say that I've ever been that stupid was like Fat Tuesday of, I want to say it was 2001, I think, was probably the closest. And I didn't puke. I didn't overdo it. But I definitely drank way too much. Um I, I just, yeah, I have never been that alcohol blacked out, alcohol poison fueled ever since. So I'm sorry it doesn't relate to St. Patrick's Day. I apologize for that. But that's, I mean, that you you wanted to hear about the time that I was, I, I mean, literally, yeah, it was insane. It was completely insane what I did to myself in 30 minutes. Well, and speaking of drinking a lot, how are you doing right now? I'm also drunk right now. I, <laughs> you might. Okay, so I have never really been a Scotch fan. Like, I understand and appreciate the prestige of really good Scotch, but I've never really had the opportunity to truly enjoy really good scotch. Now I've had good whiskeys and uh Tim knows that I've had, you know, I've got really good whiskeys and stuff like that. But I've never really enjoyed really good scotch. Now he and only thanks- has Jim Beam. He's lying. It's all Jim Beam. <laughs> it is. It's all Jim Beam. I uh, um it's it's McCormick's in the plastic fifth or plastic pint bottle. Anyway, no, seriously. Um so my wife fortuitously I guess it would turn out actually broke a blender today and she was doing something with the Girl Scout. She's making like worm dirt with like Oreo cookie. I don't know. So she needed a blender or some shit. And so I was tasked with going through the cul-de-sac where we live to go and talk to some neighbors and say, Hey, can I borrow a blender? And so I go to one, I go to my buddy Andy's house and he's like, oh no, I'm sorry, our blender's fucked up, whatever, blah, blah, blah. No problem. Go down to my buddy Bob's house. He's like, yeah, let me see if I can find a blender. So we're looking for a blender and everything. By the time he finds the blender, my oldest daughter comes and she says, oh, hey, mom says we got it figured out. Don't worry about it. And so my buddy Bob is like, well, shit. Would you like a cocktail? And I said, well, hey, if you're offering. And he's like, you know, I'll join you. And so he busts out the Jameson whiskey. And this was a very, very fine whiskey. And so I, we, we've polished off that bottle. And we're talking and having a wonderful night and solving all the world's problems. And he's like, do you like scotch? And I explained my scotch stance and situation. And he says, you know, we need to fix that. And so he goes and gets uh what, what I believe is called the Ardmore Scotch, which is a truly amazing, you know, true Scotch with the peat moss and all that good stuff. And I have never truly smelled such a wonderful peat. Apparently, smelling peat needs to be on a T-shirt now. P-E-A-T, smelling peat. Um, and it was the smokiness and everything. It was really, really good. And 
We basically drank from 5 till around 8.15 or so. Time is currently 10.35 and I am definitely not over it. There was many, many ounces of undiluted, no ice, no water, no soda, no club soda, no nothing. Just whiskey and scotch for three plus hours. We're feeling good down here in Texas. <sighs> so now that we've killed 17 minutes. We did. I think we we actually killed it this time. We literally killed it, had time, spent the time to dig up a hole, bury it, and then take a piss on it. We had that time. <laughs> Would you like to go to more show-oriented things? I believe we have some tweeters. Yes, we do. I'm checking the old mail sack here. Check it. Check that sack. Check it. Oh, that's not the mail sack song. No, How I'm is it? Sad. It's your turn. What's your rendition? I know. No, you were so perfect in your, uh, in 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 your what what what's the word when not choreography, not orchestration, timing. No, when you write a song, what is what is uh, you whatever you know what I mean and. It was perfect, and it was good, and we should just use that from now on. Anyway, um, we shake don't have your any... mail sack. I don't even remember it. Shake, shake, shake it your... good. Some shake, shake the shake mail your... sack. Yes, you should, or something like. Oh, that. okay. Shake uh, that know. mail sack. Shake it good. Shake that mail sack like you should. Something like something, that. I don't know. Yeah, don't something know. like that. Oh no. Okay. Anyway, we don't have any emails. I just made him go through that exercise just so I could fuck with him. Uh, but we do have some Twitter followers. If you would like to send us an email so you can hear the results of actually successful argumentation over the theme song for our mail sack, please send us an email to the show at slsgas.com. But if you would like to follow us on Twitter, like the uh, next two people I'm about to mention, please follow us on Twitter by following at the SLSCast. So we have two Twitter followers to mention. Uh, first one is KT the Intellect. This is at Intellect KT, which is a Phoenix hip hop artist, founder and CEO of Intellect Studios LLC. Yes, uh, so definitely feel free to do that thing with KT the Intellect if you like. Also, we have Dr. Dashiki, which probably one of the coolest Twitter handles I've seen in a while, which is at Chicka Boom Boom. <laughs> That's right. C-H-I-K-E Boom Boom. Chicka Boom Boom. <laughs> That's awesome. It says, uh, this guy is a uh, medical massage therapist in training and founder and creator of At Mola Pride Apparel. So, that's pretty cool, and I'm glad that we definitely have these two followers. And uh, that is all of the wonderful things that we have to cover here on our wonderful mail sack. So, would you like to get to the news, sir? Yes. Then here we go, folks. It's time for... The news! And first up from me, from VanityFair.com, by way of Paul Chi, 
Brie Larson says, not clapping for Casey Affleck at the Oscars, quote, speaks for itself, end quote. Her quiet reaction to Affleck's best actor win spoke volumes. Yes, basically what boils down to is when Brie Larson presented Casey Affleck with the best actor Oscar at the Academy Awards, her muted reaction did not go unnoticed, especially on social media. After handing Affleck the award, Larson stepped back and stood with both her arms at her side while the audience gave the actor a standing ovation. Many viewers speculated that Larson, a vocal advocate for sexual assault survivors, did not clap, given Affleck's history. He was sued by two women for sexual harassment, allegedly committing during the filming of I'm Still Here. Both suits were settled in 2010. Larson confirmed to Vanity Fair that her reaction was intentional. Quote, I think that whatever it was that I did on stage kind of spoke to itself. I'm sorry, let me rephrase that, make sure we get the quote correct. Scratch that, start over. Quote, I think that whatever it was that I did on stage kind of spoke for itself. I've said all that I need to say about that topic, end quote there. Now, I'm going to stop there. I do encourage you to read the rest of the article. That was only about the first third of the article there. Uh, but that does hit the most important highlights in terms of what happened. Um, I personally think that while I find it admirable that Brie Larson wants to, you know, be there for victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse, uh, that is fine. But quite frankly, um, and, and, and while, and I also have to commend her that even though she, um, made her statement silently and as best as you could say respectfully the statement was still made i gotta say that um things that have not been conclusively proven despite settlements despite no faults despite anything else i think you kind of have to say let that shit go um because really all it does is make you kind of look like a it, it makes you look bad um you know, I can appreciate your position, but at the same time, perhaps maybe reserve that for people who are, uh, that you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt deserve that vitriol. Tim! Thoughts, if any. I actually, with this one, I am siding with her because I, I think there's more to it. Than it being between, uh, or, or or than it boiling down to if it's been proven or not, due to not only how recent it happened, but there was a court uh, settlement. Like he settled, I forget if he settled out of court or he did. He settled out of court, but he settled out of court seven years ago. Yeah, I was it seven. I could have sworn something it else really happened was. recently. Both suits were settled in 2010. Huh. Well, okay. I, I understand what she did, and it's kind of strange when things like that get settled out of court. I'm down with that. I, I get why she did it, and it doesn't bother me too much. But if it is the case, which apparently it is, that it happened seven years ago, I'm not going to lie. I first heard about this when it was released that he was actually going to be nominated for an Academy Award. That was the first time I heard about it. Granted, I know we're movie guys and whatnot, and we're supposed to keep in touch, you know, keep track of all this stuff. But 
Up until about six years ago, or I guess seven years ago when it did happen, I wasn't paying attention to stuff like that. So I I don't know. I I get it and I don't get it. It's just this one, I can see what she was doing. And it wasn't like a big, broad statement. It was a silent statement. She wasn't like completely going out of her way to say something about it. So it, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me too much. Fair enough. I, I don't know. I, and you know what? That's fair. And and look, again, I, I to be clear, I respect her right to her uh to her individual protest. I think that in terms of protesting in and of itself, I believe she handled it beautifully because all she did was stand there. She um she she did her job, she did what she signed up to do. Um you know, she clearly wasn't happy about it, but she didn't throw a big fit. So more power to her for that. I just, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that someone who is so in tune with that line, I, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I would want to be, I would just want to be sure, um, before I make even, even as muted of a statement as it was any kind of statement. So, uh, but cool. All right. What do you got for us, sir? First up from me. Via Vulture.com, if we're going to cast movie stars in musicals, it's time to bring back dubbing. That's the title of this article written by Jackson McHenry, and it says this. Emma Watson is a good actress who looks the part of a Disney princess, but she does not have the voice of one. In her defense, few people do. Aspirational figures that they are, Disney princesses tend to sing songs that push the limits of the average vocal range without breaking so much as a cartoon sweat. As anyone who's made a bad choice at karaoke can tell you, those girls love their key changes. See reflections. And don't get me started on Let It Go. So it's not too much of a surprise when, as Emma Watson runs up to a hilltop for Belle, the reprise, in the new Beauty and the Beast, her voice wavers. She's pitchy and rushed, seemingly hesitant about all that adventure in the great wide somewhere. Before Beauty and the Beast premiered, Watson described the experience of singing on film as terrifying, a reasonable fear. Despite what fairy tales might have you believe, there are some things you can't accomplish just by trying hard and believing in yourself. With all of the swaddling protections of a big studio effort, singing lessons, auto-tune, the chance to pre-record in the studio, the actress was guaranteed to at least sound fine. But a part like Belle demands something more than fine. In that 1991 film, Paige O'Hara, who had previously appeared in various Broadway musicals, played the part with mid-Atlantic spunk, imprecise, schoolgirlish articulation, best seen in something there. Dozens of actresses have taken on the part on Broadway and theatrical tours, and every dramakin has pretended to be Belle at least once. We've all learned one thing. To succeed at the part, you have to be exceptional. Watson, to put it frankly, isn't. Beauty and the Beast might be the most egregious attempt to shove an actor into a singing role beyond their abilities, but it certainly isn't alone. Just within the realm of Emma's, there's Emma Stone, who replaced Watson in La La Land and went on to win an Oscar despite the fact that her vocal abilities are nothing to write home to Boulder City about. 
Stone's saving grace is the musical itself. Her big number, Audition, The Fools Who Dream, comes with the world's most accommodating key change, the equivalent of going half a speed faster on a treadmill. Meryl Streep dodged the can-she-really-sing bullet in Florence Foster Jenkins by singing poorly. In Into the Woods, she dodged it by being Meryl Streep. Her co-stars in that musical from the last five years, Anna Kendrick to future Mary Poppins, Emily Blunt, all do their best, but mostly they make you wish for some experts who could step up to the task. Audiences may love an underdog story, but somewhere was the talent divide more apparent than the 2012's Les Miserables which included both singers who can act, Broadway's Samantha Barks, actors who can sing, Anne Hathaway, and actors who tried their best, Russell Crowe. Thus I propose an old Hollywood solution to a new Hollywood problem. Let's bring back vocal dubbing. If you're going to hire famous actors to bring some star's power to your movies, help them out by letting someone else do the hard part. Back in the movie musical Heyday, this practice was fairly common. The late Marnie Nixon, for instance, provided the singing voice of everyone from Deborah Kerr to Audrey Hepburn, but those who provided dubbing often went without fair credit. But that's a black mark against Hollywood, not against dubbing itself. If we had our way, the dubbers would get fair recognition. Sure, bringing back dubbing might strand a bunch of talented potential stars in the unglamorous position of acting as other people's voices, but it might be worth it, if only to save audiences from the second-hand embarrassment of watching amateur singers fail. And the article does go on from there a little bit more. Do check out this Vulture article. If we're going to cast movie stars and musicals, it's time to bring back dubbing. Matt, what do you think about this? I like how they mentioned Marnie Nixon, because Marnie Nixon, I mean, she was the voice of The King and I. That was her voice. She was the voice in West Side Story. She was Maria. So, I mean, like, and those were all memorable because of their voices. You can actually go on YouTube and listen to the original soundtrack to Maria, and you can hear how different it is. Do you think that we've now come to the point where, like, the idea of it sounding real, like these are real people singing this just so it makes that extra dramatic connection with an audience member who might not be able to sing but does like to sing over? Well, I will say this. I, I, I think it's important that if we go the route that the author suggests that it is 100% transparent um, and that it will allow theoretically lead to more stage and stage actors uh, and actresses being brought in to fulfill those roles so that we can have better transparency and a bigger pool of actors and actresses to choose from. Uh, as is the case, the, uh, coincidentally, with Luke Evans. Luke Evans actually got his start on Broadway, well, on the stage, rather, uh, but he did Rent and other musicals, and so that's why, as Gaston, he is, like, fucking blowing it out of the damn water. Um, I agree, though, that, yes, you think Deborah Kerr when you think The King and I, but that is not her voice. Um, we, we think of... Um, 
uh, like White Christmas, right? And you've got Rosemary Clooney, who really was singing, but the other young lady, and I, 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 I apologize, I can't think of her name, um, that was not her singing at all. And so, yes, it, it has been done, but I think there needs to be a good deal of transparency if we're going to do it. Um, because as we'll get to later on, yeah, the, the author is correct. Emma Watson did not cut it in the singing department at all, at all. So, and it's really disappointing. It's really, you may as well have just gotten the original girl, uh, from, from 1991 just to sing the song, sing the song, sing the songs again, and then just had Emma Watson acting. She's a good actress, and it's not that her voice is terrible. It's just that it's not meant for musicals, um, and it's not a powerful voice, and that makes a really big difference. So I don't know. I'm all for it, dude. Seriously, I was down with that damn article, hundred percent. Bam. Yes, sir. Down with that damn article. All right. Well, this is gonna be my last piece of news right here, uh, just given time and everything, especially since my diatribe on drinking before. Uh, so from WashingtonPost.com, by way of the Associated Press, Daniel Kaluuya uh, responds to Samuel Jackson's casting critique. Yes, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Kaluuya, star of the horror hit Get Out, has responded to Samuel Jackson's suggestion that a black American actor ought to have played the part. Uh, Jackson told radio station Hot. 97 that he thought too many roles were going to British black actors. Jackson said an quote American brother who really feels end quote the movie's racial tensions would have benefited Get Out, a thriller about deep-seated American racism and an interracial couple. Uh, in an interview by, uh, by GQ, the 27-year-old Kaluuya expressed admiration for Jackson, but disagreed with his stance. Quote, here's the thing about that critique, though. I'm a dark-skinned bro. When I'm around black people, I'm made to feel other because I'm dark-skinned. I've had to wrestle with that, with people going, you're too black. Then I come to America, and they say, you're not black enough. I go to Uganda, I can't speak the language. In India, I'm black. In the black community, I'm dark-skinned in america i'm british bro and all quotes there um now here's the thing uh that i and and please uh that's that's about half the article right there not a terribly long article i do recommend you check it out again um washingtonpost.com by way of the associated press daniel kaluuya uh responds to samuel jackson's casting critique Here's the thing, is that this is one of those things where everybody's right, okay? Uh, one of the things that I really respect about Samuel Jackson is that he is not afraid to say what is on his mind as it relates to the racial and political landscape in America today. Now, that's not to say you have to agree with everything that he thinks. I certainly don't. But... Um, I respect and I truly admire the fact that he's not afraid to enter the arena, to bring ideas in and talk about it. And the thing is, is that he's right. He is right in that there is something uniquely American about the way that um, Get Out was written. And yet, so is Daniel. Because if we're trying to address the idea of what it truly means to be black in America, how about someone who is black but doesn't fit in? Is someone who is 
too black necessarily or someone who doesn't who who doesn't fit in with their own heritage because they don't speak the language and don't work within the culture that is something that is truly isolating so it's one of those really interesting dynamics where both parties are right um in terms of the performance for me I felt that Daniel did a fantastic job. I really enjoyed Get Out. We already know that. I gave it a very high rating. But that doesn't mean that Samuel Jackson's point is wrong either. I think that uh, the right amount of gravitas brought in by a great um, African-American actor could have done the same job that was performed well. But that's just it. It was performed well. And I think that's where we let the performance stand. Is was it was it a well done and well crafted role? I think it was, and I think it was taken care of expertly. But that doesn't mean that we should eliminate. Personally, I don't think that does, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't eliminate the idea of the discussion from Samuel Jackson's point of view either. What do you think, Tim? Um, Samuel Jackson is Samuel Jackson off base here. Uh, does he have a point? Do you care? Where do you land there? What it comes down to is the overall in product. And I thought he did a great job. Uh, he was a highlight of the movie, just like you said. That's what it comes down to. And, you know, Sam Jackson might be right, but what's the point of him saying it? I mean, that I, I think that's what gets me. It's like there's no point for him to say it. I understand if that's what he feels like, but who gives a fuck? I mean, this guy... Daniel, I, he did a very good job. There is nothing wrong with his characterization. So if he did an awful job, still I don't necessarily think that would have been justification for him to say exactly what he did. But, you know, I I thought he was good. Right on, right on. Okay, well, that's my news, sir. Bring us home on the news. Okay, so my next two pieces of news. Via NewYorkTimes.com, unfinished Orson Welles film gets a Netflix commitment. That is right. This is written by Brooks Barnes. And this unfinished Orson Welles film is entitled The Other Side of the Wind. And this is what the article says. That film, the unfinished final opus of Orson Welles's, re-emerged on Tuesday with a major development. Netflix is joining their rescue party. Yes, one of the most famous movies never released. One that has bedeviled various directors, movie companies, and cinema buffs since Welles left it unfinished upon his death in 1985 may finally be completed and shown worldwide. And by the way, my neighbor's being an asshole, so they're deciding to fucking make their smoothies tonight. Saying, quote, I'm not going to be defeated here, end quote, said Frank Marshall, who was a lion producer on the film in the 1970s and has been among those on a quest to finish it. Quote, we're going to get this made, end quote. They mean it this time. Unless something else unforeseen happens, and given the twists and turns that their completion quest has taken over the decades, anything is possible. The Other Side of the Wind, a skewering of avant-garde directors, was conceptualized by Wells as a type of collage. The film is a reconstruction of a party, using various types of footage, supposedly shot by guests in the paparazzi, held at the home of Jake Hannaford, a nonconformist film director, just before he dies. Scenes from Hannaford's unfinished comeback film within a film are interspersed. 
after decades-long efforts to complete the other side of the wind, went nowhere, writes. Holders favored different approaches, to put it mildly. There was a breakthrough in 2014. A producing team that included Mr. Marshall, Philip Jan Rimsia, and Peter Bogdanovich, who acted in The Other Side of the Wind, secured the rights to 1,083 reels of footage stored in a warehouse outside Paris. I don't want to read the rest of this, but basically what happened is that back in 2014, they secured the rights, and they went to Indiegogo.com to get more funding to put this film together. And I donated my 200 bucks to this film because I really want to see it and I really wanted to be a part of it. So they didn't quite reach their goal to make that movie. And since 2014, they've been very limited with their updates on Indiegogo. So a lot of us people who funded, helped fund this movie have not really heard too much about it and have been growing quite uh, weary. I mean, granted, the movie only raised $406,000 out of their $2 million goal, but, I mean, they were still saying they were going to make this movie. So a couple years went past, didn't really hear anything about it. I was literally, a week or two ago, was planning on getting a hold of Indiegogo and getting my money back until it was released via Netflix and via the NewYorkTimes.com that Netflix secured the rights, they committed to this film, and they are going to help fund and distribute this movie on Netflix. So uh, I thought that was very exciting that Netflix is actually stepping in and joining the march and preserving the supposed unfinished masterwork of Orson Welles. If you want to read more about this, and there is quite a bit more, do head over to NewYorkTimes.com. Unfinished Orson Welles film gets a Netflix commitment written by Brooks Barnes. And um, lastly here, and I know, Matt, I, I, you're, you are a fan of Netflix's rating system, um, the five stars. I know you are a fan of the five-star rating system via entertainmentweekly.com or EW.com. Netflix changing user reviews dumps star ratings written by James Hibbard. After years of allowing customers to rank movies on a scale of 1 to 5 stars, the streaming service announced plans to replace the system with a binary thumbs-up versus thumbs-down rating. Soon, 1-star ratings will cease to be a thing on Netflix, or 5-star ratings, for that matter. The new Siskel and Eberdeen system was revealed by Netflix executive Todd Yellen at a press briefing at the company's headquarters in Los Gatos, California on Thursday, Variety reported. The executive said Netflix tested the system last year and found that users volunteer 200% more ratings when faced with a simple up or down choice than when having five options, so the system will result in more feedback from viewers. Yellen also noted that the review system has been less important over the years, as the company has found users will rank respected documentaries with five stars and more frivolous titles with one star despite being far more likely to actually watch the latter. Still, it's hard to not feel like the new method gives users less information. A four-star average feels rather different than a five-star average, even though both would receive the same thumbs up. 
to help compensate for the gradient loss, a Netflix spokesperson tells Entertainment Weekly the company is also adding a percentage match score that's based on compatibility instead of a score based on a movie's quality via reviews. For example, if you see a title has a 90% match, that means that based on your viewing habits and patterns, we think you are highly likely to enjoy that title. And all quotes there. There's actually more to this article. Again, uh, that was EW.com, EntertainmentWeekly.com, Netflix changing user reviews, dumps star ratings written by James Hibbard. Matt, what do you think about this? I, I am not pleased, mainly because they are clearly dumbing everything down. Um, I, I just I don't understand the point of dumbing everything down. There is a nuance to liking things that um, you like a genre or you like a style, but not necessarily that particular movie. That um, you would you should be able to say one, two, three, four, or five. Um, even though I like to do, you know, we do quarter stars here on the show. But even just in point of fact, even a half star would have been better on Netflix. Um, and instead, it's either I like it or I don't. And I read that article as well. I, I I get the idea like, oh, but if you like this something, then you're just going to get more of that same stuff. And if you don't like it, then you'll get less of that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that it doesn't allow for nuance, especially when there are certain like guilty pleasures or if you like a bad movie for specific reasons, either sentimental or... um you know, because of certain technical or story aspects that mean something to you, you might, you may never know because you don't like those kinds of things overall. But when you're able to key in on certain things and leave a more specific rating, then it allows for that kind of generation. I disagree with the move. I think they're dumbing it down too much. I think they're, um, the fact that people aren't you know, star rating things enough, um, is, is their fault. And they should, uh, you know, they should step up instead of dumb down. Yeah. I think that's bullshit also, because my thing is that like, they're going to give you a percentage rating based on what you watch. Well, I'll tell you what, there are things that I've watched that I just kind of kept on and didn't realize how much I hated it until about like 10 or 15 minutes in. And so my question is, will that count that towards something that I watch? Therefore, it's going to recommend stuff like that. If it says that, if it gives me a thumbs up, I, I'm more willing to check it out. Yes, but I don't want it to count against me via the percentage rating if I don't actually like it. And I already know their their uh, recommendation scoring is pretty screwy because I'll tell you what, every single fucking... Uh, made-for-Netflix movie that comes up on Netflix always gives it a higher star than what I would have given it by at least two or three stars. They have different motives there, for sure. Sure. So, yeah, well, at least we we agree on that. So, All right, well, in that case, we will now move on to I'm the only one who hated it. Yes, and on this edition of I'm the Only One Who Hated It, um, I, you know what, I'm gonna go with a movie from 2004. This is the number one comedy, uh, from 2004, um, that was, uh, it was even PG-13 even. 
number one PG-13 comedy of 2004. On an $80 million budget, it brought in $516 million. And yet, uh, clearly, while it was obviously a monetary hit with fans, critics didn't like it, and yet it made a buttload of money. And it's interesting, though, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, not too many people say that they like it. Only 58% of audience members say that they like it. And while that's not quite enough to keep that popcorn bucket standing, according to Rotten Tomatoes, that's still a pretty heavy indicator that quite a few people, even now, still like this movie. The movie in question is, of course, the J. Roach-directed vehicle for... Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller, which of course is the sequel to Meet the Parents, being Meet the Fockers. Yes, in this wonderful sequel to Meet the Parents, we find uh, Greg and Pam, that's Ben Stiller, um, and of course... Uh, Terry Polo, who decide that they should go ahead and introduce their parents to one another. The parents, of course, of uh, Greg are played by Dustin Hoffman and Barbara Streisand. Now, um, and then, of course, much like the first movie, hilarity ensues because of all the shenanigans that ensue. I just... You know, as much money as this fucking movie made, and even though people nowadays will maybe say they didn't like it as much, people were just all the time, you know, doing the whole bring it in, hug thing that Dustin Hoffman did and everything, and the whole sex therapy thing that's supposed to be funny because Barbara Streisand or whatnot. And it just wasn't funny. This this was an entire exercise in, hey, let's just make sure we hit every single thing that the first movie did, and let's do it again, because money! Um, not because it should be good, or because it should build on that. Simply because money. And the whole thing suffers as a result. I absolutely abhor this movie, and it's because the first goddamn movie did so fucking well at really connecting with the audience in terms of a story that everyone can relate to. And the proof in the pudding uh, of them trying to... Um, of them trying to bring every single reference to the first movie back is Owen Wilson. There was literally no reason for him to be in this particular movie, especially given the subject matter. And yet, he's back. And granted, it's not a huge role or anything. It's basically just a glorified cameo. But it's those kinds of things. It's like, he just didn't need to be there. If the movie was strong enough to stand on its own, things like that wouldn't need to be. And yet they were, which is why it doesn't, and that's why I fucking hate this movie. The first one is outstanding and will always be a good one. You know, I have nipples. Can you milk me? That's the first movie, right? Whereas the second movie is just a bunch of fucking let's try and do it again because money. So, 2004's Meet the Fockers, I'm the only one who hated it. Come join me. What do you got there, Tim? Okay, so I'm going to put it all out on the table there, or here, my table, because I can't put it out on your table. Just maybe the table in your ears. So even though I edit the show, post the show, write the little glimpse about the show online, I kind of forgot what this segment was all about. 
Um, I, for some reason, thought it was going to be an ultimate letdown. I was preparing for it, and I realized I couldn't even pull that title off that I was going to use for ultimate letdown for this one. So... I, I'm not going to have too much to say about this one because A, I don't want to piss too many people off and B, I just don't want to say anything too incredibly stupid. The film that I chose came out in the year 2005, February 25th, 2005. Yes, in February you might be thinking of, wait, that is the month of Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Not anymore because Tyler Perry, baby, took the February movie release but before Fifty Shades of Amanda Steele's Taint did, the movie in question grossed $50.7 million on a $5.5 million budget, was 116 minutes too long, <laughs> distributed by Lionsgate Film Starring. Steve Harris, Shamar Moore, Cicely Tyson, and Tyler Perry, directed by Darren Grant. And this is, of course, Tyler Perry's first theatrical outing as Medea in Diary of a Mad Black Woman. If it were out now, it would be called Medea's Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And I am saying it in such a way because this movie is super melodrama. Some of it is pretty funny, but it is very melodrama. And it is a little too spiritual as well. When this movie came out in 2005, I was in high school. I can tell you the exact grade I was in in February of that year. I think I was a junior. I'll say junior. So now you know exactly kind of how oldish I am. Uh, when I the uh, A yearish prior when this movie, the, tri- the teasers first started coming out, it was something different. It was something uh, new in the comedy spectrum. And going into it, I was expecting a comedy. I was not familiar with Tyler Perry before this film. I wasn't familiar with his plays. I didn't know who he was. I just thought he was an up-and-coming comedic performer who enjoyed wearing old women's clothing. So I didn't go see it at the movie theater, thankfully. I actually watched it with my mother, who by the end of the movie was bawling her eyes out, and I felt pretty depressed myself. And that was around the time when I had a firm grasp of tone. And unevenness, or I should say tonal unevenness, because when you go into this movie, the oh, the beginning of the trailer is pretty serious. The woman is having issues, yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden, Medea pops out and the entire tone of the trailer turns into I'm this goofy, mad black woman. Or maybe, it's, wait, who's the mad black woman in this movie? Is it her or is it the other woman who got screwed over by her husband, dude? I don't remember. You're, I was going to say, you're asking me. I didn't see this movie. so Both of them. I mean, she's pretty mad. Medea's pretty mad. She's a black woman, I guess. So, I mean, I guess they're both mad. But you just think, you know, she's all crazy and goofy that this movie is going to be this madcap goofy thing. And I obviously missed the boat. Now, going into this movie, knowing what you're getting yourself into, I, I understand if you dig it. If you've followed uh, the, the Medea saga on stage, if you like it, that's cool. But when you're watching this movie, unknowingly what to expect, it is the a very uncomfortable experience because you're kind of laughing at stuff and then you feel bad. Then you just start feeling bad that you're watching this movie, that, that you shouldn't. And it's not because of the subject matter as much as because of how all the different aspects they hit. You know, they do, uh, what is love? 
I, I think kind of race. I don't remember. Maybe race, but mainly love, family, humor, depression, and ultimate sadness. <laughs> and I guess acceptance also, but sadness. I mean, my mother was crying next to me. And this is Diary of a Mad Black Woman. I'm sure there were Tyler Perry, Medea Black Woman, Mad Black Woman movies that have come out since then that are equally as depressing that I'm sure my mother would not cry during because it's not as effective as it was seeing this first one. That is why I'm the only one who hated Medea's, Tyler Perry's Diary of a Mad Black Woman on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the critical score is 16%, where they say, quote, Tyler Perry's successful play can't make the move to the screen. The mix of slapstick, melodrama, and spirituality lacks a consistent tone. But the audience score is 87%. Yes, 87%. That is 4 out of 5. That is the average rating. 4 out of 5 out of the user ratings of being 89,052. Yes. Medeas. Tyler Perry's. Diary of a Mad Black Woman. The movie. Matthew, did you see this? Do you agree? I must know. I have not seen a single Tyler Perry movie. Except for Star Trek 2009. And Enter, and enter Darkness, if he was in that too. Diaz, Enter the Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. Um, you know, more power to him for being a very, very smart producer. He is. I, I definitely give it to him. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely he, he is, definitely him. understands his target audience. And people get mad at him for that because, you know, oh, you're contributing to negative stereotypes of black people and whatever. I'm like, he's not contributing anything. He's making money by showing people, his intended audience, what they want. So... More power to him. He's a smart guy. He figured it out. He worked it out, and he's doing it. So, um, but and people go and see the movies too. Yeah, like even they now, they, the yeah, they part. still go and make money. So, um, I, I, I think even we were talking about this back like at Halloween when Medea's scary Halloween or something like that, um, was like running away with the market, and people were like, oh, I don't understand how this. It's because it's not for you. So don't worry about it. Um. So, no, I haven't ever seen any of these movies, um, but I can certainly see why, if you're not part of the intended audience, how it would be very easy to hate the movie because it's it's not for you, so why would you like it? There we have it. One day, I'm going to make Matt watch Medea's Diary of a Mad Black Woman. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so where do you want to go from here? Oh, I know where we want to go from here. We want to do the movies, right? Yes. Then let's do it, folks. Here we go now. It's time for... The Movies! All right, and this week's let down. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Let's see. Oh, and before we do... And even though we're in the next segment now, real quickly, next week we are going to be doing a copycat throwdown where we're going to compare 1972's Solaris with 2002's Solaris. So that's what's up there. And here we are with the movies for this week, which is going to be T2, Train Spotting, or and uh, Beauty and the Beast, the 2017 live uh let's 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 just go ahead and call it what it is in you know air quotes here live action version um what would you uh like to start with sir 
train spotting. And in case you can't tell, this is a movie so desperate to hearken back to its 90s roots that it calls back T2, which people almost universally uh, think of for Terminator 2, and instead apply it to train spotting. Now, I get it, it's clever, it's fine. But what we have here is a 2017 British black comedy drama film, and of course this is set in Scotland, directed by Danny Boyle and written uh, by Johnny Hodge. And this is of course based on Train Spotting and its subsequent uh, um, sequel, Porno, by Irvin Wal- uh, Welsh. Stars, of course, Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremer, Johnny Lee Miller, and Robert Carlyle, all reprising their roles from Train Spotting. Now, the thing here, and of course, this movie is set 20 years after the end, after the events of Train Spotting. Um, but the thing is, is that while it's basically trying to follow, um, Mark and, uh, Mark and Spud and Sick Boy and of course, uh, Begbie, All it's trying to do is give itself, it's just simply an exercise in, um, in trying too hard to be relevant 20 years later. Um, it, it, it constantly references its source material, like literally showing clips from the first movie. Um, it, it, it's kind of like begging you to remember what made the first movie great. And the simple fact of the matter is, I'm watching this movie now because the first one was great. So you don't need to remind me of these things. You just need to show me what's going on now. And instead of really doing that, it spends almost the entire movie um, wrapped around minuscule things that are ticks with, with, with character then it actually has anything to do with moving forward the story of these characters. Um, the plot itself technically does this, but it doesn't do it in a good way. It's very clunky, and it's working too hard to sit there and say, remember this? Remember this? Remember? Oh, do you know why you should care about this? you know why you should... Yeah, because the first movie was good. Um, and I was worried about this from the get-go. I just feel like it's it's literally at least 10 years too late and simply tries too hard to make you remember why the first one was good. And if you're there, it's because the first one was good and they just lost their way. Um, this is 2.75 out of 5. Certainly better than okay. Clearly good performances all the way around. I'm a huge fan of both Robert Carlyle and Ewan McGregor. But uh, their performances... Uh, were not enough to unmuddle the characters and get around a very poorly executed story. 2.75 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? Rating this movie for me is kind of difficult because I enjoyed it. So I, it's already going to be a 3. Like, I, I liked it. Because the first movie w- was a mix of things that that made the movie so good. It was... The film style, how the movie was made, was so different and cool at the time. It was kind of refreshing and fun. 
and it was used to really accentuate what these characters were going through and and felt you know especially the first like 15 20 30, 25 minutes of the movie when you're first getting a feel of these characters and all the bad decisions that they're making and at the time it's like ooh these guys are having fun i should be having fun too until the harsh reality bitch slaps you in the face it's like that that's kind of like what made up the first train spotting you know great characters good performances interesting filmmaking and editing and how it was shot in ideas and just an all-around poignant if you will story now with t2 i personally didn't think they waited too long in fact i thought this was a very interesting part of their lives to revisit these characters. I heard an interview that Danny Boyle said it 20 years or later uh, because he wanted physically these actors to look different, like they matured or like they just got older because 10 years ago, they still kind of looked the same as they did 10 years before that. And they wanted them to look naturally older. And so he thought, you know, 20 years later would would be fine. And especially how all these characters re-portray their characters, it just fits right in perfectly and it makes the sad parts you know like spud you know he's still a heroin addict just seeing him still like that he had time to get better and have a kid and have a wife and then he got back into heroin and just all this crazy shitty stuff happened to him that you feel bad so when the movie revisits some of those more interesting trippy emotional film techniques or shooting techniques like they utilize in the first train spotting during some of the drug sequences when they utilize that with spud when he's taking these drugs still and you know all this shit he's been going through it works it's really sad and it helps you at least me connect more with the character and get back in the groove with the movie the movie utilizes that tactic where they're pulling aspects of the first film into the second film, but they are progressing these characters and progressing their friendship and their camaraderie, or not really camaraderie, I guess, and their and their fallbacks twenty years into the future, you know, now. So that's like the good thing that they did. That's very interesting. That's what I thought really helped make this movie fit as the sequel to Transpotting. Now, for the negatives, the flashbacks didn't bother me like it was bothering uh, you, Matt. I thought how they utilized it with the whole nostalgia factor and how they used to be and how to reconnect with their friendships, I guess, and how it was more of a character thing than progressing the story. I thought it was very interesting. And it's something that you don't really see all too much. And I thought they utilized it pretty well in this movie. I wasn't expecting it. In fact, when I went to go see this movie yesterday, uh, full disclosure, I saw it at work. It's a TriStar movie. So I got to see it at work. Didn't have to pay anything. But when I went to go see the movie, I didn't know what to expect. I thought it was I was going to see more of the first movie based on the trailer. There were aspects of it. But then again... It's how I look back on my crazy drug fuel times as a younger Tim, you know? I mean, there are times where I really want to go back and experience that, that same thing, but is it really worth it? It's fun to look back on it, but I shouldn't revel in it and try to emulate it. That is the, kind of the subtext, the important subtext of this movie the technical aspects that I didn't like were the editing in this one. It's like throughout the film, it goes back and forth trying and not trying to be like the first one with the quick edit 
shots, the quick camera movements, when it doesn't really hit that mark. Um, and so it feels a little weird. Like, is it trying to do it? Or are they trying not to do it? Or are they trying to prove a point? And really, it didn't have a niche like the first one. Energy. That ecstatic energy it had to it, where everything was just gung-ho and caffeinated. There was a big high going, and you were just having a good time watching it, and you can connect to it in certain ways, and you were there. Well, this movie would borrow some of that, but you didn't know what they were trying to do with it. And then most importantly, the biggest knock against this movie is that the film revels in nostalgia. When the characters like Ewan McGregor preach throughout the movie how unhealthy nostalgia is. Now, in that interview on NPR of Danny Boyle some weeks ago, he did talk about how heroin, you know, is what was holding him back and killing him in the first movie. In this movie, it's nostalgia. Looking back at the past is what was holding all these characters back. Now, when you think of the movie in those terms, it kind of makes sense. And it brings kind of a different perspective to the film. But when you don't have that to go off of, does it really work? Sometimes it does, but sometimes I think during its key moments, it does not. So I think right now I'm going to sit at 3.5 out of 5. I'm looking forward to going back and rewatching it tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I, if you enjoyed the first one, just know what you're getting getting yourself into it's a continuation, not a complete rehash. So 3.5 out of 5. All right, all right. Well, that brings us to Beauty and the Beast, the 2017 American musical romantic dark fantasy film. It's directed by Bill Condon, and uh, it stars Emma Watson, Dan Stevens, Luke Evans, Kevin Klein, Josh Gad, Ewan McGregor, Stanley Tucci, Audrey McDonald, Gugum. Uh, Mabatha Ra, Ian McKellen, and Emma Thompson. Uh, and this is basically a, um, a, a light reimagining of the Broadway musical, uh, that was, it is literally the 10th longest running musical, uh, on Broadway. And I want to say it was from like 1994 to 2007. And, and so basically they took, they took their lead from that version. This is not a remake per se of the 1991 movie. It is basically the musical slightly reimagined and come to life um, for the quote unquote, you know, live action. Um, and let me, let, let me say this. I, I really enjoyed the expanded story. Um, I like that they went a little bit further into Beast. I like that they went a little bit further into Maurice, um, into um, Gaston. Uh, I like the fun stuff that they did with LeFou. Um, I really liked how in the Gaston number, you see LeFou paying everybody off. So you get the idea of why Gaston is the way he is. Um, I like that... Uh, they made, um, I, I like that they tried to make Belle, um, they, they tried to give her, give a reason for her being the headstrong bookworm that she is, uh, going into their 
family background. So I like the expanded story. There were a lot of things that they did. Also, the two main musical numbers featuring Gaston are fucking amazing. Hands down, the two biggest highlights of the film. Um, Gaston, also Luke Evans, 100% steals the show. All of these things, great, great, great. Kevin Klein, fantastic. In terms of the actual acting, Emma Watson did well, and so did Dan Stevens. I was totally down. I get the acting. But as a musical, this movie does not work, mainly because Emma Watson cannot sing in musical form, and Dan Stevens' entire performance, including the, including the singing, is has been modulated for beast form. Now, I'm not trying to say he can't sing at all or anything, but it's very clear that his voice has been modulated so that he sounds very deep like the beast, right? Um, so it's, it's just not worth it in that regard. Again, I maintain you should have just gotten the original singers to come back, and if that wasn't probable, then let's do some dubbing or something like that. Um... Outside of those things, it just doesn't work as a musical, in my opinion, in this particular regard. And I feel like overall, this was just an exercise in try hard for spectacle. And in some ways it worked, but in a lot of ways it didn't. It's a very, very decent movie. I'm not sorry that I saw it. I still hold the 91 version as the superior version, but... um I definitely don't think this is a bad version at all. 3.75 out of 5. Um, you'll have a good time, but simply put, it's a try-hard, not strong musical because of the cast. With the exception of Luke Evans, who is fucking amazing. And I'll even give Josh Gad a positive nod as LeFou. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. I did not like Josh Gad in this movie at all. I got, I gotta be honest, I don't think you like Josh Gad. <laughs> I don't. But he wasn't Josh Gad in this movie. Like, he wasn't, like, his over-the-top, you know, whiny Josh Gad. Like, he played this character... I mean, let's let's face it. He played this character, like, you know, like, he, he was definitely gay. Sure. Which is fine. It it doesn't bother me. Like, there, it's not just him. There are a couple of... I don't remember if it's, it's the same, you know, henchman or not. The Gaston henchman or not, who turns into... Has the makeup and the wig on there at the end, and he actually likes it. Does that, like very feminine, like, nod and stuff and kind of flaunters off. Like, none of that bothers me. In fact, you see a lot of that stuff in Disney cartoons where it's just silly like that and it, gay, I guess. You know, that's just the character's gay. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, if it's done right, it's funny. But the execution of those moments are handled absolutely poorly and in fact it doesn't add anything to the moment it doesn't add anything to that song it doesn't add anything to that scene it just stood out and that was my i think big problem with this movie other than some casting choices is that the movie did not hit all of its marks now when you come to the all cgi musical numbers such as be our guest which i thought was fantastically performed by Ewan McGregor. I thought he did a fantastic job at playing Lumiere as different as he did, at least different from what we're used to. And the opening song with Belle, 
is really good. It's shot well. The people behind her are really good. And their character choices are fantastic. But Emma Watson was not good. They're talking about her, how she's the most attractive woman and all this stuff. And she's so mysterious-ish and all this stuff. And she reminded me of Kristen Stewart in Twilight. She just had that girl look to her. You know, I think Emma Watson is pretty. I think she is a fine actress. I think all these people uh, who like her, it's justification that they like her and all that stuff. It's just she does not belong in this movie. It just didn't fit, especially her in her romantic relationship with the CGI beast. And he is only a CGI beast because whenever you see him, he looks nothing like a computer-generated image of a beast of some sort. And I couldn't help but think that every time I saw him. I thought the voice they used for him was very good, but the all-around design for him did not work out. Then you throw in Emma Watson as Belle, and it was just somewhat strange. But luckily, the movie isn't completely focused on them, which I guess is a red flag. In fact, the movie focuses on a lot of other stuff, so you're easily distracted by how gorgeous this film is, how wonderful Ian McKellen, Ewan McGregor, and all these other performances are in this movie. I'm sorry, I did not like Kevin Klein in this movie. To me, he just felt like he was out of place and wasn't, was more of the serious actor in the film that was trying to do something more serious, more movie-like than a theatrical performance, I guess. But, I mean, again, you have all this other stuff to be distracted by and to enjoy and just to marvel in that it makes it absolutely worth it. I think this is an absolutely fine Disney film. It's my favorite live-action Disney movie since Cinderella that came out a couple years ago. I thought the music was wonderful. A number of the shots and the camera work and a huge chunk of the direction was absolutely wonderful. And that is why I land on... 3.75 out of 5 as well. It's just a wonderful movie, but then again, you have to keep in mind that most of this movie is from the cartoon. Most of the same people that created the cartoon created the Broadway musical, so I mean, it's all coming from material that we've been familiar with for over 20 years. At least you know what you're getting yourself into when you go and see this movie. Beautiful songs, for the most part, decent singing, beautiful orchestration. So 3.75 out of 5 for me as well. Right on, right on. Okay, well next week's movies are going to be Life and Don't Knock Twice. Life is available in theater. Uh, No, this is not the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie. (laughs) Uh, But the new movie there in the theaters and then don't knock twice is available on v o d um and so without further ado i believe it is now time for the spiel is it not sir spiel on all right well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners cries of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast and you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can also follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me on twitter this is matt at nitwit12345 you can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that's your heart's desire and don't forget 
forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as get us on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Dan Stevens, I get to say this. The comfort zone is the great enemy to creativity. Moving beyond it necessitates intuition, which in turn configures new perspectives and conquers fears. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>